The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for April 30th, 2022. Lawfare recently announced its new podcast series entitled Allies. The series from Lawfare's Bryce Clem and the team at Goat Rodeo DC tells the 20-year story of how the U.S. failed its eyes and ears, translators, interpreters, and other local partners that were on the ground in Afghanistan. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from August 2012. In the episode, Ritika Singh sits down with Daniel Byman to discuss Byman's paper entitled Breaking the Bonds Between Al-Qaeda and Its Affiliate Organizations. But first, here's a trailer for Allies. You can subscribe to Allies at a link in the episode description. After 20 years of war, the U.S. was getting out of Afghanistan. After consulting closely with our allies and partners, I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. There are scenes of panic and pandemonium at Kabul airport today as desperate people pour onto the runway trying to flee the country. Shocking scenes of desperation and chaos in Afghanistan are being seen around the world. The withdrawal from Afghanistan ended in chaos at an airfield in Kabul. In the face of that mayhem, the military got thousands of Afghans who worked with the U.S. out. But despite the efforts of veterans, lawmakers, and senior leaders in the military, even more were left behind. Their fate was decided by which side of a wall they were on, and whether or not they had the right pieces of paper. Now, they live in hiding. We were the eyes and ears of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. The Taliban knew all this. That's why they used to shoot at them first. Why is it so hard to track the number of interpreters, translators, and contractors killed as opposed to U.S. soldiers? Because nobody wants to know the number. This show takes you inside their lives, the threats they faced, their attempts to escape, and the obstacles the U.S. government put in their way. I moved my family from location to location three times. There's no option for us. Some days they only find you. He was just banging his head against the wall trying to figure out how do I unstick this. The problem was not the idea. The problem wasn't the legislation. The problem was the execution. Our story takes you from the front lines of the war to the halls of Congress to find out how did this happen? 
From Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, this is Allies, a podcast about how the U.S. government failed our eyes and ears. The Afghan translators, interpreters, and partners who fought alongside the U.S. Coming this May. Welcome to the Lawfare Podcast. I'm Benjamin Wittes. Today's episode marks the second in our series of interviews Ritika Singh is recording with people who have non-legal expertise in areas of interest to Lawfare readers. Ritika's guest this time is Daniel Byman, research director in the Saban Center at Brookings and a professor at Georgetown's Security Studies School. Dan has recently written a paper entitled Breaking the Bonds Between Al-Qaeda and Its Affiliate Organizations, which Brookings published last month. He sat down with Ritika recently to discuss Al-Qaeda's many splinter groups and the relationship between the franchise groups and the diminishing core. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time um, and sitting down with me. What's your paper about? My paper looks at the affiliates of Al-Qaeda. So it looks at Al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Qaeda of the Islamic Maghreb, and other affiliates. It tries to look at why they join, the problems they have with the Al-Qaeda core, and also why a number of organizations don't join up. And it uses all these factors to draw lessons for what the United States should do differently. Okay. I wanted to start by asking you um, about Al-Qaeda core. What is the degree, in your opinion, um, of command and control that the core exerts over the affiliates? It's obviously a different amount for different affiliates, um, and there's more cooperation with some than with others. But how much say does the core group have over the actions of its affiliates? Uh, To join up as an Al-Qaeda affiliate means that you at least pay lip service to some Al-Qaeda goals. And so we see some organizations like Al-Qaeda of the Islamic Maghreb that are probably, I will say, the least under the sway of the Al-Qaeda core in terms of their day-to-day activities. But even they have changed what they've done somewhat. So they're doing more um, efforts on Western targets in their region than they had done previously before they joined up. And then at the other end, you have Al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula, which has taken the core's injunction to attack Western targets around the world um, quite seriously and has attempted various um, attacks on civil aviation. So we certainly see uh, some groups following the core to some degree, but the answer is it varies quite a bit in practice, that uh, groups will try to join up and uh, take on some of what the core preaches, but only some. And why would you say that Al-Qaeda core wants these wants different groups to be affiliated with it? Uh, part of the advantage for the Al-Qaeda core is that it validates its image Mm-hmm. as the leader of the uh, jihadist part of the Muslim community. So when other organizations are following its lead, it makes the, co- uh, the core feels it's, it's winning, that this is what it's meant to do. Uh, but far beyond this, uh, from the core's point of view, uh, this is a way of influencing the nature of the overall struggle. It feels that too much of the struggle in the past decades have been against local regimes, have been against the wrong targets. And by joining up with al-Qaeda, it will direct groups against the United States, against the targets it feels are the most appropriate. Um, Also, these affiliations give the core a sense of relevance, 
they've been hit hard recently and as a result haven't been able to do the attacks they've wanted to do. And a number of these groups, like Al-Qaeda of Iraq, have been active in some of the most important theaters mm -hmm. for the overall jihadist movement. So by linking up with them, they're able to do more operations and often do more operations in very important countries that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. But wouldn't you say it's a catch-22 then? Because, I mean, even if more and more affiliates pop up and operate in very important theaters, the core is able to exert so much less influence. And um, the control that the core has over these affiliates isn't always the kind of control that they want. That's absolutely right. And to go further, um, what you're saying is it dilutes their brand in some ways, that you know, all these affiliates are going different directions, so what does al-Qaeda mean? Um, beyond that, al-Qaeda only has a certain amount of resources. Mm -hmm. So when they take on new affiliates, are they able to help them in a serious way? Are they able to push them in a serious way? And if they have lots and lots of groups that are joining up, they simply there's less to go around. Mm -hmm. Do you see the role then of Al-Qaeda core evolving as more and more affiliates pop up, you know, some more successful than others? Um, certainly, a lot depends on the Al-Qaeda core strength itself. Uh, it's been hit very hard, and its ability to lead, to communicate, to fund has been uh, hit along with it. So uh, that alone will change the nature of the core and its relations with the affiliate. But as the if, if the affiliates continue to grow, if you see more of them, um, the ability of the core to direct their activities may diminish, and we may see some affiliates becoming as important or as powerful as the core itself. My next question is then, why do affiliates want to join Al-Qaeda? Um, affiliates join for a number of reasons. Uh, one is simply resources. Al-Qaeda offers money, access to training camps uh, for much of its history, not as much today, um, access to a secure area as a haven to, to plan, train, to have an organization um, really establish itself. Um, another important part, though, has been failure, where a number of these groups thought they could succeed locally and were defeated by the local government um, in Algeria, in Egypt. And as a result, uh, the recruits found themselves, at the end, losing, out of money, no place to hide, and under tremendous pressure. And Al-Qaeda said, we will give you a home and we will give you a new mission. And that was attractive to at least part of these organizations. And so I think it's a mix of opportunity and desperation that explains a lot of this. And has it been only since 9-11, really? You know, in the last decade? I mean, how, how has this trend been? Um, when have affiliates joined Al-Qaeda? Um, has it always been a part of Al-Qaeda's mission to recruit? Um, before 9-11, most of Al-Qaeda's efforts focused on supporting other movements, not oh. having them become formal affiliates. So Al-Qaeda funds, trains, backs, assisted a wide range of groups before 9-11, and really was quite content if they went and fought their local struggle, even though it would encourage them to kind of join up with its broader mission. It, it might select individuals to, at times, work with Al-Qaeda alone, at times work with both, but it wasn't trying to take over these groups. Uh, the one exception before 9-11 was its takeover of the uh, Islamic Jihad organization in Egypt, mm -hmm. where that organization was hit so hard and was desperate for a new home that it didn't become the um, Egyptian branch of Al-Qaeda. Really, its um, cadre outside of Egypt joined up with Al-Qaeda and became, to a large degree, indistinguishable. Um, after 9-11, we see a more formal affiliation strategy. And here they really are trying to control the direction of the broader jihadist movement. So it's, um, in part, they're still trying to support others, but it's much more about their own brand, much more about pushing them in a formal Al-Qaeda direction. 
a big part of your paper is about the groups that choose not to affiliate, which is, you know, in some ways, in my mind, the more interesting story. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, there is a tendency to look at groups that are jihadist broadly defined or Salafi jihadist to focus on the particular ideological slant and say they're all al-Qaeda. Uh, when in fact um, a fair number of these organizations have not joined with al-Qaeda. Um, and I think the reasons uh, as we think about it are fairly straightforward. Uh, some of these groups don't want to take on new enemies. And when you join with al-Qaeda you take on the United States in particular but also a host of other governments. Uh, some of them fear the mission distraction, so they're focused on a particular government and why do they want to divert from that and embrace al-Qaeda's more global agenda? Um, a number of them have serious differences with al-Qaeda about targeting. The question of can you target other Muslims, can you target civilians, these are things that al-Qaeda has one answer for and some groups are more extreme than al-Qaeda and some are uh, quite critical of al-Qaeda for killing civilians. So you see a fairly broad range on this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. What would you say then is the danger um, from the United States' perspective of like lumping these groups together? Um, uh, both the ones that choose to affiliate with Al Qaeda and the ones that you know are just are simply terrorists but are not Al Qaeda in in the brand name. Well, there are two extremes that you can extreme mistakes you can make when you think about affiliates. Um, one is that you take groups that aren't al-Qaeda, either they haven't joined or they don't want to join, and you lump them in with al-Qaeda. And in so doing, you create enemies of groups that didn't want to be your enemy. And this is a real risk because when you don't know the lay of the land. And there may be some groups that have very limited contact with al-Qaeda, and that contact is used as proof that they're going to be aggressively anti-American. Mm -hmm. uh, conversely, you have a group like al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula that really did not receive the attention it deserved until it began to attack the United States directly. Mm -hmm. And initially, I think these attacks caught many people by surprise, and you could say that was too late, that uh, the affiliation was ignored until the danger became too strong. And for the attacks that occurred on uh, Christmas Day 2009 in particular, when uh, there was an attempt to bomb a U.S. airplane over Detroit. Mm -hmm. uh, that was averted really only through a, a large degree of chance. The organization smuggled an explosive on an airplane, almost detonated. And so that was too close a call, if you will. And it was done in part because the importance of the affiliation 
uh, was ignored until until it became manifest. That actually leads right into my next question, which is, how competent do you think these affiliates are? You know, I mean, there hasn't been a successful attack, knock on wood. I mean, AQIP has tried three times, but how competent would you say, you know, they are, and if and which ones are the most notorious in your mind? Uh, for the most part, these organizations are not particularly competent at international terrorism. That most of the people who are with them are local fighters who might be at home in the slums of Mogadishu, who might be at home in the wilder parts of Yemen, but are much less able to go to the United States or London or Paris and um, infiltrate themselves, spend time there and surveil a target, and so on. So their number of, of skilled operators is often quite limited in a terrorism sense. Uh, that said, some of these organizations are quite big. Mm-hmm. So when you add thousands of people um, maybe even in an indirect sense at best, <coughs> to the Al-Qaeda roster. If only 1% of them is competent in international terrorist sense, that's actually not a tiny number. And so we see in Yemen, uh, they had a very good propagandist uh, who was killed. Uh, and they also had a very good bomb maker who's still out there. And th- that individual um, really is tremendous value added, even though it's not as if all of AQAP is a tremendous terrorism threat. And then it's hard, of course, to, to say that we have succeeded. You know, it's hard to evaluate when we have. I mean, if, if we dwindle the number down to only a 1% success rate, but that 1% still continues, not with mass, mass casualty attacks, but, you know, small bombings here and there, then, you know, of course, it's hard to evaluate if that is a counterterrorism success or not. That, that's absolutely right. Um, one of the big questions uh, with counterterrorism is how do you know when you've won? Yeah. And it's easy to look, say that any lull in the tax is just that. It's a lull. It's not a true break. Uh, and as you start expanding the circle and worrying about not just the core but all these other groups, um, are you actually simply uh, moving the goalposts and making declaring victory that much harder? Mm-hmm. And there's always this tension between a kind of a false sense of security and a false sense of insecurity. I think the three big uh, groups that I've certainly seen the most out there about are, uh, you know, the Shabab and AQAP and AQIM. But lately I've seen a lot of stuff about how AQIM has become kind of, you know, neutralized and the Algerian government's handling of AQIM is a a success in the war against terrorism and and stuff like that. Would you agree with that? Would you say that the AQIM has dwindled now to the point of um, it's not really anything that it used to be? Um, AQIM has been hit very, very hard in part of why it joined with al-Qaeda in the first place was mm-hmm. its predecessor organization, the Salafist Group for Breaching and Combat, was devastated to a significant degree by the Algerian government. Uh, one area of concern is that, um, I'll say Maghrebi jihadists, not inherently AQIM, have gotten a bit of a rebound lately in Mali, yeah. where we see them working with groups that uh, come from, that took advantage of the looted arsenals from the civil war in Libya. Mm-hmm. and have really established, in a geographic sense at least, uh, quite a large haven, and have been carrying out policies there that are, are very reminiscent of the Taliban. Now, are the people in Mali al-Qaeda? That's a bit of a stretch. But are they people who are like-minded and could become al-Qaeda? That's certainly possible. But they have not expressed any kind of... Well, actually, they have. They've expressed a Western, uh, uh, anti-Western sentiment, sentiment recently, right? Oh, absolutely. They've yep. been telling Westerners stay out of this area. Right, They've been, the form of Islam they're preaching is very anti-Western as well. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in terms of AQAP and the Shabab, would you say that they are 
the two most you know robust affiliates of of Al Qaeda? Um, I think that's uh, fair to say. Uh, AQAP certainly, and the Shabab has been weakened in the last year, but it's still quite strong. Um, also of concern is Al Qaeda of Iraq. Um, mm -hmm. This is a group that was really by 2008, 2009 devastated, hit extremely hard, but it's steadily come back since then. It's launched a series of attacks. It's actually trying to take over territory again in Iraq. And because Iraq is such a strategically important country compared to Yemen or Somalia, the fact that AQI is doing better um, should be of more concern uh, than the Shabab um, because of the, the difference in uh, strategic worth of the two regions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I guess, how would you say, and you do talk about this in your paper, but how do the affiliates influence the core group? Not just the core influencing the affiliates, but um, what is the impact that the affiliates have on the core group's thinking and strategy and tactics and leadership? Uh, the affiliates are able to shape the core, really the brand of the core. Uh, what the affiliates do is um, when they do attacks, those are seen as Al-Qaeda attacks. Mm -hmm. And so when the affiliates kill innocents or when they go after uh, minorities within Islam, those reflect poorly on the Al-Qaeda core. So uh, that's something that has been a huge risk the Al-Qaeda core takes. Um, the other, uh, I'll say, interaction is often when the affiliates are um, transmitting tactics and methods. So we see when a group joins with Al-Qaeda, they often embrace suicide bombing. Uh, but we also see things like improvised explosive device technology go from Iraq to Afghanistan and from there uh, to different countries around the world where Al-Qaeda has a presence. So when they learn lessons, these are often transmitted up and down the chain and through various affiliates. Mm -hmm. What about affiliate to affiliate? You know, I mean, how deep is the relationship between any of the affiliate groups? Um, and do some of them copy others? Um, you know, how do they aid each other, if at all? Um, at times, um, some of the affiliate-to-affiliate -affiliate relationships are more important mm -hmm. than the affiliate-core relationship. Uh, at times, a particular affiliate may be flush with cash. So we saw this in Iraq, where when Iraq was really the center of the jihadist universe, that um, the Al-Qaeda affiliate there was doing quite well and was able to dispense cash elsewhere. Uh, in part, uh, there are personal ties where individuals may go to fight, uh, say, from um, Algeria to fight in Iraq. And then when they come back to Algeria, understandably, they have connections to the Al-Qaeda affiliate uh, back in Iraq. And so geographic proximity matters. Uh, Shabab may be more tied to Yemen because uh, Somalia and Yemen are close to each other. Uh, but also, when these individuals go to fight significantly far from their home, they bring with them contacts that don't go away. Um, just because they've left. so uh, And often those contacts are affiliate to affiliate more than affiliate to the core. Mm -hmm. What do we know um, about the cooperation between the Salafi jihadist groups that operate in Pakistan mm -hmm. and Al-Qaeda? Because there, you know, there are so many of them, um, and it, it seems to me that LET is the most dangerous of the groups that operate in Pakistan. Would you agree? What do we know about, I guess, many of these groups like the Tariq-e-Taliban and mm -hmm. the cooperation between these groups and Al-Qaeda? Um, Al-Qaeda cooperates with a, a range of groups in Pakistan, and uh, this is both a an opportunity for Al-Qaeda and a danger. Um, it very much doesn't want to be seen as taking sides in the sense of favoring one group over the other. Why? Because there are so many of them? Uh, because there are so many of them, and it wouldn't want to alienate them. Mm -hmm. So in a way, by declaring one group to be an affiliate, that would actually be negative from Al-Qaeda's point of view, because it would risk losing the cooperation of others. 
Can groups declare themselves to be affiliates? Um, they can, but it's really only real, if you will, if uh -huh. Al-Qaeda embraces it as well. If Al-Qaeda comes out critical of that, the group looks rather silly. Mm -hmm. um, so, <coughs> uh, so part of it is there's just such a multiplicity of groups, and none of them have taken over the jihadist space. Um, a number of the groups, including uh, Lashkari Taiba, actually have a very different ideological foundation than Al-Qaeda. I see. Um, but having said that, in practice, it doesn't matter too much. Mm -hmm. So the ideologues will care quite a bit about this, but the operators are much more focused on what we're going to do tomorrow, who we're going to go after, and there there's a lot of commonality. And, and I mean, the training camps, too. I mean, they're very similar. Absolutely, and the whole logistics network. So training, mm -hmm. fundraising, proselytizing, a lot of this overlaps. And to go even beyond that, um, a lot of these groups are not particularly unified anymore, and they often revolve around particular charismatic figures. So there may be ties between individuals that wax and wane as these individuals rise and fall that are probably more important than group-to-group -group relations in a formal sense. Okay. Thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Lawfare Podcast, a project of the Harvard Law School Brookings Project on Law and Security. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan.